What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Ashay Songvi of Haystack. Haystack is an early stage fund that backs outlier founders at the earliest stages. Some of their portfolio companies include DoorDash, Instacart, Figma, Carta, OpenDoor, just to name a few. Ashay is one of three members on the team and he focuses primarily on dev tools, fintech, and healthcare opportunities. In this talk, we discuss the hype cycle of a venture career, distinctions between the business and game of being a VC, and things that make dev tools an attractive category to invest in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to the Confluence Podcast. I know last week Clay blessed you all and you finally got enough of uh, of hearing him. I miss him so much, like dearly when he's not here, but you get to have boring, boring old me again. And we have a really, really dope guest, Ashay from Haystack. What's up, Ashay? Hey, man. How's it going? Good to be here. Life is good. Well, yeah, man. We really appreciate you joining us, and we have some Thank dope you. to dive into. How about to start, you give us like a, you know, two minute or however many minutes you feel like <laughs> of, uh, who you are, what you stand for, how you got to where you are. Definitely. Yeah, no, thank you guys again for letting me on the podcast. It's good to be here. So, yeah, as, as Tyler mentioned, I'm you know, an early stage investor at Haystack based out in San Francisco. I've been there for about two years now, but there's a little bit of a winding path to, to get to Haystack. So I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona. Grew up there, spent most of my childhood there, a lot of my formative years. And then, you know, I think when I was a teenager, like I'd say late in my teens, got interested in business, entrepreneurship, the internet, things that I just felt were sort of on a kind of crazy growth trajectory and transitioning more to college, was lucky enough to get to Harvard, I ended up moving to the East Coast, amazing experience for me. And, you know, at school, I ended up studying a lot of kind of econ history, things that were actually, I would call maybe software sciences. So I took my first CS class and discovered that it, you know, it really wasn't for me, but, you know, took, took a bunch of classes, but felt as if you know, a lot of where I could make my impact was kind of outside the classroom. So I ended up spending a lot of time, you know, just cold emailing people, talking to startups in the Boston area, talking to VCs, and ultimately kind of got interested, I'd say like in sort of a, a strange fashion from the outside in, in the kind of venture capital industry quite early, actually, <laughs> maybe, you know, suspiciously early. And, you know, I think I thought a lot about like, what was it that a venture investor did? And kind of broke it down between sourcing, picking, winning, and, and judging or and, and managing. And I was, you know, I was asking myself the question, you know, what could I do? You know, which one of these could I do without, you know, a firm behind my back, essentially? And I think I sort of landed on sourcing. So I ended up just cold emailing a bunch of VCs, asking them, 
if they would be interested in me sending them deal flow about every month, they were like, okay, who's this guy? But sure. And ended up, you know, working on a few companies and getting them funded with a few different investors. And that was my junior year. And then kind of later on that year, ended up working on a furniture retail business called Branch, which was, or, you know, then was called Bureau. Now it's called Branch. I was kind of lucky to, to be on the ground floor of that and still growing based in New York City. And then around the similar time was working for a firm in Brooklyn called Notation Capital. You know, I worked with Nick Charles and Alex Limes as they were on their second fund there. And this was all, you know, I, I guess sort of coalescing into my senior year, you know, hadn't thought a ton about what I wanted to do after school, but met my colleague, Samil Shah. And, you know, he, I think through a series of conversations kind of pulled it out of me that I wanted to be an early stage investor. And, you know, I thought if I could optimize for autonomy and mentorship, you know, I thought it was worth taking a chance and, and going for it earlier in my career. So yeah, that's, it's a little bit of a winding path joined in July, 2019 and sort of haven't looked back since. Dude, that's, that's really cool. I remember Branch raised like a, a pretty solid chunk of VC money. What was it like kind of doing that conversion from, from running a company that you could try to scale to, to being a VC? So it's super interesting, actually. Like I, you know, we, in the fall of 2018, we you know we tried to raise a smaller kind of pre-seed round for Branch, but it was around, you know, I would say like maybe about 500K. And it was about the time that all the excitement around D2C and retail in venture was sort of dying. <laughs> and so we actually, we didn't have much luck. I was sort of going back and forth between Boston and New York. We didn't have a ton of luck raising capital. Actually, one funding source kind of fell through last minute. So that was super tough. So there was we kind of barely scrapped by to get the first inventory run. And then luckily we're able to raise more capital in the spring. But I think a lot about, you know, I would not say that I have a ton of operational experience, but I, I almost think about that branch experience almost every time I'm interacting with an entrepreneur and thinking about the ways that I you know, responded well to investors we spoke with and, you know, not so well with some investors and, you know, thinking about like, just, you know, how to build that relationship, what felt like it resonated getting feedback when someone said no, I thought it, it just, maybe I was more impressionable at that age, but it, it, it really carried a lot of weight with me, I remember. So even though it was a sort of shorter time frame and kind of a little back now, I think it had a huge impact on how I view the venture job today. Makes sense, man. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see if you flip back and forth between the two as you, as you evolve especially as we get into some of the, the topics that we, that we cover later on in regards to totally. the, venture, the venture career. So with that, man, how about we, we talk a little bit about like what it's like getting into the venture job. Like everybody talks about like what it means to get to venture, to get the job, but like once you're getting into it and working it, like, not many people have that type of insight and not many people have covered it as well as you like you did that really dope piece on the hype cycle avenger thank you yeah yeah that that resonated with i know clay a ton and myself when i read it I was like wow hmm. um, how about you you unpack that piece a little bit yeah i mean so i wrote this i want to say last year and i think 
it was, you know, maybe it was overly thematic <laughs> or like put into too tight of a framework. But, but the idea was basically taking essentially the Dunning-Kruger effect and, and applying it to working within venture early on. And, and the idea, I think, is that you sort of initially overestimate your own abilities. And then, you know, once you come to sort of reality with that, you then underestimate your abilities. But I also thought about it in, in terms of various learning curves. I think when you start in the venture industry, um, there's a lot of, I'd call it like language and culture that's highly idiosyncratic and specific to venture capital. You know, what's a safe? What's a convertible note? You know, w- what is the role of all these different investors? Like, what's the way that startups get pitched versus more mature businesses? So there's a lot of like sort of weird kind of idiosyncratic stuff. And then, you know, you sort of jump up the learning curve on that, pick up on a lot of that. And especially, you know, I had no kind of serious professional experience before this. I hadn't worked in a really structured environment. So there's a lot of, you know, picking that up. And then I think, you know, I felt that maybe at a year or a year and a half into the industry, you sort of go all the way down and you think, you know, you, I, I thought that, hey, I learned a lot, but now I feel like I really know nothing <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> like I, I really want to figure out, and this will happen over hopefully a longer arc. And I think it's sort of this almost never ending journey, but what is it that like really makes a company tick? What is like the true relationship between the investor and the entrepreneur when it's sort of maximized its full potential? Like, what does that feel like when you've, you've seen a founder go from just two people, the sort of quintessential two people in a garage to taking a company public? Like, not only like the, the arc of the business, but the kind of like emotional journey of that relationship. I think that's a lot of what, you know, if I had to rearticulate the piece, like, I think what I'd call out. And, you know, I'm only two years in, so I feel like I have most of that. I have like pretty much all the, that journey to go. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so you say you're in your your trough of disillusionment, or or, or your slope of enlightenment. Where are you at? You I'm probably in the trough of disillusionment. Wow. Yeah, I think that like, you know, I think part of it too maybe is that I'd spent a lot of time around VCs and like reading TechCrunch and reading different articles and trying to understand like different businesses for a couple of years prior to joining venture, but. Yeah, and, and I think like also now that I think about it, I don't know if I'd sort of call it the trough of disillusionment, but you know, maybe I'm like I'd find some other word for it. But I think it's this sense of like it's the sense that you, you've kind of come a little bit away, but there's like so much left to go, if that makes sense. It's like that moment where you're like, okay, like I can get through a meeting and I can like kind of tell when a company's BS. And like, I know the terms or like, I'm getting some responsibilities for real now. Yeah. But like at the same time, like there's totally a Midas list out there and I'm hyper realistic about the percentage of companies that succeed and my odds of getting there, even if I'm good at this, you know, it's, exactly. like, it's exactly. that piece. And then it's like, well, oh, and I need to like scale AUM and I need to become a partner mm-hmm. and I need to raise the fund and then scale that fund. I think that that's where people realize like, you know, this business isn't private equity or hedge funds. Or like, you know, I'm taking 2% versus 20%, all those kinds of pieces. I think there's an element of it too that's, you know, the, so so when you start, you know, you get early kind of signals, right? It's like, oh, this thing got marked up. It's great. 
you know, this company unfortunately is not working as well as, you know, we thought. But I think what happens over that kind of like two years, maybe call it two to five, is that a lot more companies are either like they're kind of working or, you know, some companies that maybe had markups aren't working as well as you thought or like reality is hitting them, you know, reality is hitting their valuations. <laughs> and, you know, luckily, like, I feel like I've been kind of lucky so far. But I think especially in this funding environment where you see successive growth rounds behind companies with little traction, it's hard to suss out the, the, the true signal in that of like, hey, is this, this business really working? And can it, you know, eventually go public one day or, or, or something like that, right? I think those signals are, are harder to parse out. Yeah, it is. It is a really interesting time. It's just a little off topic, but since you bring it up, it's like, can you just purely invest off of market psyche nowadays? And how long does that last? And like, you know, I was thinking to myself recently, like, there's this moment in public companies where if like executives sell off shares, you know, it's a red flag. Like if founders are getting liquid at their series C, series D, <laughs> is that a sign? Yeah. But no, for sure, man. You, in that piece, you talk a little bit about, or maybe it's another piece. You mentioned that the initial learning curve is broken or broken down into two different pieces. Yeah. Like the business and the game. Yeah. Which is kind of what we're hitting on here, right? Like there's, yeah. there's the fundamentals and then there's, there's the whole, well, this is how people think. This is how people talk. This is how you shoot deals from pocket to pocket kind of thing. Yeah. Or like, you want to break down that or... Yeah, to totally. I think, so the way I'd frame it is the business is what's in the job description, right? It's like, you know, sourcing deals, identifying markets, you know, helping with due diligence. Win I don't think winning investments is in the, the official job description, but it's, it's in the unofficial job description, you know, supporting portfolio companies. And I think there's a lot of learning and, and stuff that you have to do that, that comes with all of that. I think the game is, it, it, I would describe it as like, the relationship, your your the relationship between you and the broader ecosystem, the sort of like water you swim in. So you you know to these points we've talked about, right? Can you build trust with entrepreneurs, investors, executives? You know, I think this idea of judgment goes into this piece about the the, the sort of game. You know, there's a good podcast with David Z and Harry Stebbings recently on the Twenty Minute VC, where David Z is this very respected investor at Greylock and has you know, returned a lot of capital with his limited partners. You know, he talks about younger people, you know, they can do all the analysis, right? The market is this big, the it's growing X amount, the ARR is this, but he's like, can you make the call? Can you put your foot down and say, hey, I, we should invest in this company. We should go get the deal done. And I think that's what judgment is, if I had to sort of encapsulate it. And judgment is a part of the, the sort of game, so to speak. Which is more important, the business or the game and judgment piece, especially for young investors, like what should they master and why? I think, I think it's the, the sort of judgment piece because I think, I think that's what's sep I think a lot of people can get up the learning curve on the business. You know, you can like, you can't write a book on it, but you can sit down and try to understand it talk to lots of people, go through the motions, I, at least for me, and like, I'm just speaking more personally, like judgment's been harder to approach because I don't, you know, I don't have the, the experience to, to form the judgment. And so you have to like 
dig a little deeper and it's a little bit more personal and it's a little bit more scary. But I, I believe that if you get over that hump, that you know, theoretically will make you more transcendent, hopefully as a, as a venture investor and as a partner to, to entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, man. I, I think a, a good example is just like the every investor has a hit list or a miss list. Yeah. And they need to be able to justify why they didn't hit that, pull that trigger. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, even in a short career in venture, right? Like I've been doing this for like five years or something like that, but really like three or four clay as well. And like in our short periods within our space, like we can all point to like a few misses, right? Like I missed on uh, GoPuff when I was associate, summer associate at WonderCo. I'm like, fuck, that would have been great if I would have been able to hit that one, right? And, yeah. And I guess that's where like going to bat and swinging, right? It makes the biggest difference. Totally. Yeah. And I think there's also like, yeah, on the point about misses, like I think about it too, in two ways, like one is, you know, I, even two years in, like, I feel like I have my fair share of uh, misses, like, you know, I wish I invested in deal, for example, or, or remote.com. You know, there's, there's like the companies too, where you look back and you're like, what was my investment process? And, you know, did I sort of abide to that? And like, can I live with the fact that, Hey, I ran this process. It wasn't the right outcome you know, I missed. And then there's also times where you look back and you're like, that wasn't the right process. And it's also not the right outcome. So, or, you know, if I had adjusted my process, uh, you know, maybe I could have gotten to an outcome that would have included this company that I missed on. So I think a lot about that in, in that sort of conversation. Yeah. It's, it's been an interesting one to sort of noodle on. True. Well, there's a, there's a piece that you wrote as like a follow-up. The, what was it called? It's like looking back and looking ahead part two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you start hitting on a few. I need to get better at naming. <laughs> no, dude. <laughs> so me and Clay, Clay more than me are like avid readers. So like for me, like when I'm circling through like the, all the people we think actually put out dope content, like there's so many like topics and titles. So like, I actually think that that one is, is more memorable than like, the fintech revolution 4.6. So, dude, you're 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 doing well. You want to dive into to some of the 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 part twos on that one? Like you talk about how investment sizing is a function of conviction, which is huge. Which you know, sometimes pulling the trigger, the decision really is like, well, do we place a big bet or a small bet on this? Because we'd be stupid yeah. to place something, right? Yeah. Like talk about like the specialization concentrating. Uh, specialization in different things, concentrating things in different dynamics of the seed and all these other things. And I think that those are the learnings that a lot of the people who are listening to this. It might take them five, 10 years to pick up if, you, if they don't have someone like you who can kind of just hand it to them in a digestible package. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot in that piece and I can touch on a, a few of the points. I think the sort of idea of your the sort of bet you make is a function, the investment size you make as a function of your conviction, I think is, is super interesting because I think especially in seed venture growth, maybe less so growth seed and venture, you're just dealing with so little information that I think it's easier to say, you know, if you're typically writing, I'm saying your average check size is a million 
and there's like 300k left in the round you're like let's just do it you know you know screw it let's just do it and i think that there are instances where that works but i think at times it might signal a lack of like full conviction and i just think about you know investors who've done quite well and return you know multiple capital like large multiples on on funds and i think part of it is that you have to sort of take bigger swings that as as like a function of your fund size because the sort of concentration it magnifies the returns it also does magnify the losses so you have to have sort of thicker skin but i think you know venture is about like big swings and big bets right yeah i think that's that's one way to to think about it right you know the, there's this idea it's like you know excel you know made a lot of their money in the early 2000s on facebook and theoretically they have made more money if they just put all their money in facebook and, you know obviously that's an extreme sort of version of what i'm talking about here but i think it's sort of place at a larger point on the point about increased investor like there are more specialist investors and how does this drive valuations well one is that it's not the only piece driving valuations in this market so I'll, I'll call that out but the way to think about it is that like so these larger larger firms are getting you know bigger and bigger right you know these kind of mega funds big platforms and the way to effectively allocate resources internally as you get bigger as a company is that you specialize functions in that company. And so that's how you see like, you know, FinTech investors and PropTech investors and workflow SaaS investors, like all within this sort of larger umbrella. What happens, I think, and, and I'm not making any judgments here, I'm just sort of stating it as it is, is you have, you know, people who have a certain sort of career appetite slash career risk is the sort of downside of that. In these more specialist positions, and so if they see deals within a certain category, the opportunity cost of not doing that deal is too high. So then the, the act, the sort of the move becomes do the deal at all costs, which then naturally creates a more option-like dynamic, which then drives up prices. Um, I think I just, I like sort of see it kind of in market. And, you know, I don't think it's necessarily good, necessarily bad. Like, I, I'm just sort of, I think it's just something I've observed that's been kind of interesting that I don't think as many people talk about. And, you know, you know, we'll see how this, that sort of plays out. And, the, the, you know, there's a few others like that, you know, that I talked about. I have a lot of friends, for example, who work in like traditional private equity or venture or, or hedge funds. And they, they ask about, you know, how do you underwrite things and you know, how do you model things? And, Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just think that like venture is probably closer to journalism or something than it is to those because you're sort of collecting information from sources, you're building trust with sources, you're piecing together this sort of like different pieces of information to help create a larger narrative, like in conjunction with the company. You're not like, you know, seeing how much EBITDA like this manufacturing company is going to sort of print out if you lever X amount. And so, yeah, that was another point I touched on on that piece. So yeah, a couple of different threads there and you know, happy to chat about it more if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, there was one, I think you're right. It's very different than the other sectors. It is a, a lot in the sense that our member, it's funny that you draw the, the analogy to, to, to journalists. Our member when I was at point 72, like thinking a ton about like, dude, what if we could recruit as like an operating partner or like a principal, whatever it might be, one of the top FinTech writers. 
because mm. their job is perfect. They're on top of things ahead. They're always a, ahead of the top. The topics is at hand. At any given point, they know the 20 founders who are going to be raising. They know what investors are relevant. They actually have seen a ton of data on valuations and can have the trends because their tagline is quite literally what the raise is and from who. And their relationship and reputation is on point. Like, I, I, I love that. But one piece of this whole written, written experience outside of like you breaking down the different sectors you're interested in, which I find fascinating and we'll get to, is the delta between paper gains and liquidity. Mm, yeah. Got to break that down especially in the world we live in today and coming off of the, you know, specialized investing, causing things to be hype. Like, how are you seeing that? Yeah, I think this is one that is going to play out. So the, the idea is that like, you know, before it was really great to have like a 5X fund. I'm just sort of using that as like a rough, you know, rule of thumb. Now, you know, you have lots of seed funds because of the way that the markups have gone, where you have subsequent financings, you have series Bs, in the 500 million, north of $500 million post-money valuation range that, you know, the, the sort of paper gains of the, the funds are looking a lot more, you know, they're looking a lot greater than they did in the past, I'd say, is for the smaller funds. I think the, so, so that's all TVPI, which is like total value to paid in capital, which is basically like, you know, the, the paper gains. Um, I just think about like, you know, before there used to be this kind of sort of linear relationship, I think, between the paper gains and the subsequent liquidity. I just wonder now, like, how, you know, how like capital will be paid back to investors, you know, who've been sitting on a lot of these paper gains. And so I wish I had a sort of better answer for you, a better articulation. I mean, there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is it does feel like there's probably more small to mid cap M&A. So, you know, like before $200 million was kind of like a weird, like M&A range for like a company. And now there's like probably more acquirers who can buy companies for $200 million. So like, and seed funds would be happy with that type of outcome. You know, there's more ways of going public, SPACs, direct listings, traditional IPO process. And so there's more companies. It does feel like anecdotally, I haven't looked at the data. It does feel like more companies are going public. I know public market investors have some qualms about some of these companies, especially some of the SPACs, but like that doesn't, you know, the early investors still get paid. So I think there's a couple things sort of intersecting here. And, you know, I think before I would have said like, some of these companies are super overvalued, like the paper, the liquidity isn't going to follow the paper gains. Now I'm like, there seems to be another buyer. Um, so who knows, honestly, what, what will happen? Yeah, most definitely. I, I think there's a little fluff there, but the abundance of, of mechanisms of liquidity, even just secondary markets in the private, in the private space will, will definitely provide a lot of people an out. But there is like this looming feeling of the, the, the next biggest idiot. And like at some point that, yeah, right? Like it's like, okay, well, more idiots are surfacing. <laughs> but like, what, what you don't want to be, you know, the, a bad place to be as a company is like, say you accelerate, you know, revenue, you, you 3X revenue for like, you know, two or three years in a row, right? And you've like found yourself at like a unicorn valuation. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, you're 3Xing on top of this relatively small base. And then all of a sudden, like the market is just not as big as you anticipated. And so there's some deceleration. 
and you know you grow 1.2x or whatever in one year like you know the, the, like you're not growing as much and so you might be in this like kind of dead man's land <laughs> of you know you've raised all this money you have all these expectations and then the, the growth trajectory still needs to like really push forward in order to make the math work and so the investor appetite will shrink as the sort of growth rate of the business decelerates so like there's a lot of different things there that can be very tricky for companies, right? But if you're a founder, you're, you're not planning for your company to decelerate. So that's the other side of it too. Yeah, I mean, but that's exactly why I say when you start to see people who raise their Series C through Series F selling a lot of secondaries run. <laughs> you know, like, mm. it's the same analogy. Yeah, yeah I think that there's like two sides to it. Like one is I think once you get into the deeper growth rounds, like the secondaries, generally were more common. I think what, what you're seeing, which is unusual now, is like the secondaries at Series A's. You know, obviously each founder has their own kind of personal thing going on. And so it's hard to make like a judgment call on that, like in general. I think the, the argument that I've heard is like, you know, if you take X amount on the table, you won't go for the smaller, quote unquote, smaller exit. And you won't settle for the smaller exit and you'll like really try to go big. but Again, you know, that argument can backfire as well. So I don't, I don't have a good take on you. And I do think like at times the secondaries can lead to misalignments on those. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the simple explanation for people getting liquid at the A is A's are getting bigger. Right, like- Yeah, actually, and, and there's just like, someone will do it. Like, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it's, there's like a capital markets product around it, you know- dedicated to it. <laughs> also, you know, why, you know, it's, that's the structure of the market. Like, you know, so <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. Most definitely. Well, yo, like to benefit you a bit, how about we spend this last piece before the quick fire round with you giving us a little bit of insight into the verticals that you actually spend time evaluating at Haystack? Like one area I've seen that, that you like is developer tools. Mm-hmm. What's exciting to you? What are you looking for? And then, uh, yeah, any, any other space you want to jump into? If not, we'll, we'll launch into the, the quick fire. For sure. Yeah. So we are, we're generalist investors, but I think a little bit coincidentally, I've spent a lot of time and I've written a lot about developer tools and kind of enterprise infrastructure. And I think there's a couple of things to call out. Um, you know, one is developer tools are quite hot right now. I think there's a lot of excitement. You know, if you look at groceries companies, public companies, Elastic, Confluent, HashiCorp, like these are all really good businesses. And, but, you know, even a couple of years ago, I don't think there was a lot of conventional wisdom around building large companies in developer tools. Like that sort of, you theoretically couldn't have made money selling the developers. And so, if you think about what changed, software ate the world, it also ate the enterprise. And, you know, it's every, it's nice if every company had, you know, sort of like a Google or Facebook-like infrastructure to manage their internal cloud to deliver the service. And I think that's where all these things kind of evolved. And so the buyer appetite got a lot bigger. And then I think that like, if you just think about the sort of like contours of a developer tools business, they're pretty like interesting. And I think there's even some relationship between like consumer, consumer media businesses or consumer networks where the internet, like in, in open source, you can have a direct relationship between the creator of something and the, the consumer of it. And so, you know, dev tools, like because of that, 
the best product tends to win. And so there's a lot of interesting things that happen there. And I think there's also like a lot of platform type things that make these businesses stronger, right? Like you can have other third-party developers come in, build on top of your tool, build on top of your service and create apps and modules and stuff like that. So that's kind of interesting. You know, more recently, I've, I've tried to look a little bit deeper at financial services and, you know, more specifically payments and payments in other geographies. So we're lucky enough to be investors in a, a B2B payments company in Latin America called Higo, which I'm, I'm super excited about and a lot of interesting emerging market stuff happening there. And then I think, you know, looked a little bit more at like healthcare and life sciences. So have an unannounced kind of software data infrastructure investment in, in the life sciences space that I'm super excited about and, and want to spend more time with. And then I think, you know, an, an area of mine that I, I've wanted to spend more time in and talk about more publicly is kind of deeper technical things. So I think there's like these kind of trends that I'm looking, if, if I think about myself in 20 years and I'm like, I wasn't involved with this in some capacity, I would, like, I would be so mad, you know, sort of the synthetic bio re revolution in terms of fermentation, new ways of, of creating traditionally chemical materials with biological processes, different energy things. So geothermal energy, batteries, et cetera, like the decreasing costs of solar and, and renewable energy and that sort of expansion. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit all over the place, but I just think about the sort of like raw potential of some of these growth curves and it makes me very excited. For sure, man. No, all those areas are really interesting. I like the, the last component you spoke on as well with the synthetic bio and the evolution of those components. Not many people have come on the podcast have dove into those, so. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm like as I'm as early on that learning curve as you could possibly be, but I'm just like so fascinated by some of those ideas there. Cool. How about we we dive into the quick fire, and uh, yeah, Clay, uh, we miss you. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm just muted over here. But yeah, so we do these at the end. We got five questions here, all meant to be answered in two sentences or less. So first one we have is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Working at a bank, investment bank or consulting firm out of school to understand how an industry works is a bad idea. Your opportunity cost as a young person is, is too high. Damn. Retweet. I feel like I literally, so many of my friends just went into banking consulting. Like, <laughs> I'm just constantly telling him like, hey, the grass is actually greener if you leave. I think yeah. they probably think I'm annoying, but I agree more. <laughs> there's there's a lot of uh, cookie cutter Twitter wisdom with that one, but. Uh. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm you know, giving I'm, him that advice offline. I, I don't know if I agree on the banking side. Mm, interesting. I think, I think we'll have to break it down. Is to learn the skill sets in other ways. But I think financially, like mm. a lot as a banker, and then it opens the doors to private equity, VC, hedge funds, et cetera, which if you, can, if you, if you want to go on a PE or hedge funds, it's hard to find other routes. That's fair. Uh, yeah, because it's a, it's a gatekeeper a for those industries. Yeah, they make like 3x the amount of VCs on average or more sometimes and mm -hmm. then like risk adjusted their path to wealth is just great so it depends if you're in it for the money or the passion i mean there's also way less of those to be fair so yeah, it's I'm like assuming, more people I'm competing for 
Yeah, it's like more people competing for less spots. I think like the biggest risk there though is just you can't share any of your thoughts online. Like they're super restrictive of what you can post online, like whether it's going to damage the brand of the bank or whoever you work for. Like I feel like that's a risk, like not establishing an online presence. That could just be my thought. I don't know. But anyway, I agree. But Tyler sounds like we agree to disagree. <laughs> I love it. I love it's, it. It's, it's a, it depends on like. It, it, is, it is a, it is a, what, what are you it's hard for? to boil down into two sentences. It is a big, like, it depends sort of thing, but that's, that's like my personal view. What I will say is for 90% of people, they're not built like that and they won't survive yeah. the, the path to being wealthy and PE anyway. But if you are savage and you're just in this for the money, I don't know. Go, go get you a job at Blackstone or TPG. <laughs> All right, Clay, keep it going. My bad for interrupting. No, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. All right, next one in the last year. What new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Yeah, I, I don't think this is like novel, but Zoom in a way like flattened the world. And I feel like I can literally meet anyone anywhere and that like businesses can be built anywhere and any by anybody. So that like just the total shock of that has been amazing to to see for me you like living behind zoom all day i like i don't like the act like i like the sort of i like what it can open i don't like sitting in my room and being on zoom all day i i, I like the hybrid i'd say i feel that i feel like i'm still trying to figure out the right amount of meetings per day because like if it gets over a certain number like I'm just washed yeah, I'm just so, and so I feel tired. terrible. Yeah, I literally feel terrible. I'm still trying to find that balance of like right amount of meetings a day without just literally sitting, looking at Zoom screens all day. I haven't yeah. figured it out yet, but I'll let you know when I do. Next one, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? We talked about this, but the long feedback cycles. And there's so, feels like there's a lower signal to noise ratio in terms of both uh, the markups you get and then the companies you pass on in this environment. Yeah. Again, couldn't agree more. Next one, best piece of feedback or advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Try to get as good at sourcing as you possibly can. I think, you know, we're not so lucky that, you know, we can sit around and entrepreneurs come pitch us. Like you have to go find the best opportunities. Ooh, give me a sourcing hack. What's your favorite sourcing technique? I'm probably a little bit unorthodox. Like I spend a lot of time I just like, if I get obsessed with this sort of idea, I tell like five or six people about it and I keep like banging the door on it until I, <laughs> something emerges. So a lot of it's through that, you know, you know I, I ask company, I ask people inside companies, like what new tools and technologies they use, stuff like that. I don't think anything it's, of it is novel, but I think you have to spend a lot of time doing it if it makes sense. Yeah. It does. Last question we got, who's a mentor of yours that you want to give credit to? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd credit my, my partner and my boss. Yeah, he gave me my first job out of school, and I feel like he took a real chance on me. And so I'm forever, forever grateful to him for that. Love it. Love it. Well, that wraps up quick fire. I think that wraps up all questions we had. Unless, Tyler, you got any last minute ones you want to add in there. Shay, again, really appreciate you coming on, being flexible. This is awesome. I feel like we got a lot of good insights from this. Cool. No, thank you guys. This is great. I, I had a lot of fun.
Huge thanks again to Ashay for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Ashay, we've linked his social profiles in the description below, and you can also find his contact info if you're a member of Confluence through the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.